Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. It's a great weekend, isn't it? Both my Ux teams won. The Bucks and the Ducks. So uh, I want to I wanna encourage you to pray that there will be a college football playoff game between Ucks and Ducks. It's my dream for this year. It's what I'm hoping for. I don't know if my Ducks are good enough. I have a feeling they're going to get creamed if they play Ohio State. But nonetheless, it'll be fun. I won't keep talking about that every week. After all, uh, it's a short season, so you won't have to bear with me if you don't like football on that, that much longer. Uh, I, I don't know about you. But three of the words that I've been saying a lot and three of the words I've been hearing the most today are, I don't know. I keep hearing people say that. Here we are in the midst of another upswing in COVID right after this incredibly contested, conflicted election. I've heard, I don't know more often than I can shake a stick at. More uh, from, from I don't know what I'm doing for Thanksgiving or Christmas to what I don't know what my kids are doing in school this week, whether they're going to be in person or hybrid or at home, or I don't know what's going on with my job. I'll, I don't know if I'll have a job. I've got people saying that. I, I have people questioning how do, how do we continue to respond to the civil unrest in our culture and just going, I don't know. I, where's the integrity in our voting system? I don't know. Where's, who, who's the president going to be? I don't know. I mean, I think we know that, right? But, I mean, I still have people saying that. What is church going to look like this week? I don't know. If you ask me how I'm doing right now, I'd say fine. And that's a genuine answer for me, but it's not the whole picture. I, I don't feel anxious, but there's just so much uncertainty right now, isn't there, that these three words, I don't know, are probably louder and more prominent in my life than I can ever recall. Overall, I think all of us are sensing this just kind of insecurity of what's going on around us, having less power and less control, aren't we? And that's the point I want to pull in today. As we look at the last days of the Apostle Paul, his life speaks to us profoundly about these questions that surround our state of being when we just say, I don't know. Paul talks a lot about about power, and the word he uses for power is the Greek word dunamis, meaning it's the ability to make things happen. It's the ability to direct or influence others or the course of events, to do what I want to do, to go where I want to go, to see what I want to see, to enjoy the things I want to enjoy them. And right now, you and I don't have that kind of power in so many ways. Even though we may say and really genuinely believe that God is in control, I think we all tend to struggle with, I don't know, of life right now. Last week, Jeremy shared how Paul lived this surrendered life of being in all in, no matter the consequences. And in his message, he pushed back on our tendency to fall into our culture's self-focused and self-centered approach to life and faith and morality. Basically, it was just a light, fluffy message. Not really. It was pretty strong, wasn't it? Right? We want to build on that message today by seeing the critical finishing touches Paul gives to this incredible one big story we've been focusing on this entire year going cover to cover in the Bible. Next week's actually going to be our last week in the sermon series, and then we're going to move on to some other series. 
We especially see in Paul's letters from his lockdown time, from his perspective when he was in prison, how Paul learned to walk in confidence and power when I don't know were the three main words he lived with. I mean, facing uncertainty every single day. Would he be beaten or would he be released? Would he be uh, fed or would he not? Would he be treated well or would he be beheaded? And Paul learned that his future was not determined by how much he could control, but by how he could rest and trust in a power that did not come from his own ability. A power from God that was far above anything he had access to in his own ability, his own strength, and his own wisdom. How did Paul get there? I mean, to see this, let's, let's first start by getting a little bit of background. So just in case you don't know a lot about Paul and his background, let, let's just give that, that to us here. Paul, also known as Saul, kind of had everything going to him for him early in life. He was a Greek-speaking Jew and a Roman citizen, which if you understand Roman citizenship, that was not an easy thing to get. It didn't come automatically like it does by being born in America. It was something that very few people had during a time when Rome was the world's superpower. He was a devout Jew from a well-respected family who meticulously followed the religious rules of his faith and of the day. He was well-educated, extremely well-educated, and he was also skilled at tent-making. So wherever he went, it allowed him to work wherever he went. As, as a devout Jew, Paul was trained to be separate from other cultures by following the rules such as the Sabbath or circumcision or food that's kosher or lots of other rules. These rules helped distinguish the Jews from other nations and kind of created boundaries and, 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 and in reality, a sense of identity for them. And as we've shared throughout this One Big Story series, the Jews felt a strong need to stay separate. And there was a reason for that. God had designed for Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. In order for that to happen, he needed a people group who would remain faithful, who would stay the course and not live like the culture in their sin around them and bring hope to the world. Paul was one of many Jewish leaders who were zealous to protect Israel's calling to be God's special people group, uh, to be distinct and separate. The Jews remembered regularly the many times their forefathers backslid, choosing to worship other idols and allow compromise. And in fact, even in Paul's day, the Jews were still suffering some of the consequences from the Babylonian exile hundreds of years earlier that had never, ever been fully recovered. And so their emphasis was they wanted to focus on not making the same mistakes. And Paul grew up in Tarsus as well. This is another important piece of a bustling, big, pagan city. So as a Jew, he had always had to live differently than his culture, taking measures to not compromise his faith based on the belief that if the Jews could keep the law of God perfectly, eventually the rest of the world would see a better life and get in on the blessings that God wanted to bring to the entire world. However, the, the Jews just could not keep the law perfectly. There's a theologian N.T. Wright who shares it like this. He says, God called Abraham and his family to be, in essence, doctors, in a sense, metaphorically, who are going to deal with the sickness that has infected the human race. The problem was the doctor was carrying the disease himself. Israel, the Jews, could not be 
the hero of this one big story. Only God could be that hero. Jesus had to come and take the sins of the world on himself to secure forgiveness for humanity so that the blessing of Abraham could go out to all the nations. And this is important to know because Paul's heart in being religiously violent wasn't coming from an evil place. As a faithful Jewish follower of God, in his mind, the Christians were corrupting their religious order and God's commands, and he was authorized by the religious leaders to kill them, and he did. But then all of a sudden, on his way to persecute more Christians, God appears to Saul, knocks him off his horse and and blinds him and speaks to him. And Paul comes face to face with Jesus and hit with the realization that Jesus is the fulfillment of his deepest hopes. While at the same time, understanding that the truth he just came face to face with dismantles everything he believed about how this hope was supposed to be fulfilled. Paul, radically transformed, goes from persecuting Christians to a Christ follower himself. After this direct encounter with Jesus on the road, Paul begins to rethink what it means to be a loyal Israelite as uh, he more fully understands how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Scripture. After some time, Barnabas comes looking for Paul because the church was spreading like, like wildfire among the Gentiles and these pagan communities needed teaching. And Paul is the ideal person because he's thoroughly educated in Scripture by the best teachers of his day. And he also knew how to navigate the multicultural situations because of where he grew up. So that's the start of his missionary journey and the launching of his purpose to fulfill the last words of Jesus, which we see in Acts 1 that says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as Paul traveled stopping off at various cities throughout the Roman Empire, he would actually first go to the Jewish synagogue where Jews and God-fearing people gathered. And he would teach them how Jesus was the Messiah King, the fulfillment of Scripture, that the whole story of Israel had been fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And some believed, and others didn't. Some thought Paul was so dangerous and misleading, they incited riots and they kicked him out of town. Paul would also set up shop in the marketplaces where of the cities he'd go to and he'd make tents and he'd just tell people about Jesus as he made tents in the marketplace, which is the main gathering place for both thinkers and commerce of the day in those cities. He prayed for the sick and they were healed. He kept proclaiming that there is but one God. See, Paul wasn't adding Jesus as yet another God to the list of gods that all these other cultures worshipped at their temples. Rather, he was saying... Their gods are powerless and they are false gods. They're not gods at all. So understand that message. The temple offerings to the gods of those cultures were actually a huge part of the economy, which is why more riots happened where Paul was beaten, stoned, and thrown in jail. Yet many were captivated by Jesus through his message and these new believers began these powerful communities where all the people were treated as equal regardless of their ethnicity or gender or economic status. 
Those communities loved deeply, we see in the Scripture recording, saying how they gave their money sacrificially to one another and to the poor, which was this whole way of loving and being a community was radically changing the culture. So to finish our background look at Paul, I'd like for you to see a clip from the Bible Project summarizing the last parts of Paul's ministry from the book of Acts. Luke, in Acts, shows how Paul's life emulates Jesus and kind of begins to help maybe even shape a little more, giving us the keys on how to navigate uncertainty. And this brings us to the final section of Acts. Back in Jerusalem, where the movement began, the Jewish followers of Jesus were suffering from a drought and food shortage. And Paul was so passionate about the church's unity that he began a major fundraising project among the diverse churches he had started. They would pool their money together so he and a group of representatives could take it as a relief gift to Jerusalem. But it's not safe for Paul in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders there dislike him so much they want him dead. And Paul knew he was walking into a trap. His friends all begged him not to go, but no one could stop him. And why would Paul risk his life to bring this gift? Couldn't he have sent someone else? Well, for Paul, this was personal. Jerusalem was where he used to participate in the murder of Jesus' followers. And now he gets to serve them. It's also where Jesus himself was executed. And so for Paul, it would be an honor to suffer there alongside his king. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as expected, he's found by his enemies. A mob forms, and they try to kill him. But Roman soldiers save his life by taking him into custody. The Jewish leaders are accusing Paul of starting a revolt against Rome, but they can't prove it. And the Romans don't know what to do with him. Yeah, they can see Paul's not a criminal, but his claim that a crucified Jewish man is the risen king of the world, it keeps getting him into trouble. And so Paul gets transferred from one court to another until he demands that his case be tried before the court of Caesar in Rome. And so they happily ship him off. Now, throughout this section of Acts, Luke, the writer of the story, has portrayed Paul's trials and imprisonments so that they resemble his previous stories of Jesus' trials and imprisonment. Luke's making an important point. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories will begin to look like his story, which is beautiful, but it also comes with a cost. On the way to Rome, the boat carrying Paul is hit by a violent storm, and everyone freaks out. Except for Paul. He's below deck hosting a meal, just like Jesus did the night before his trial. Paul blesses and then breaks the bread, promising that God is with them through this storm. And the next day, the ship hits and then breaks apart on the rocks, but everyone's washed safely ashore. Which is amazing, but Paul's not out of trouble. He's taken to Rome and put under house arrest. But it's not so bad. In his house, he can host groups of Jews and non-Jews, sharing with them the good news about Jesus, the risen king. This is a bold move in Rome, the center of power where Caesar rules the world as king. Yes, you have Jesus' alternative upside-down kingdom now growing in the very heart of the world's most powerful empire all through the suffering of a prisoner. And with this contrast between kingdoms, Luke ends his story. That's a great image, but the story's supposed to be about this message spreading to the ends of the earth. So shouldn't it continue? Of course. Luke has left the story open-ended on purpose so that his readers would know that the story isn't over and that they can participate in Jesus' kingdom that is still spreading to this day. 
It does seem when he really acts like it's unresolved at the end. But Luke's purpose wasn't to chronicle the life and death of Paul, but it was to show and the rise and the spread of the gospel and how all of us are invited to be a part of that same mission. Since Paul's mission is also ours, it's really helpful to see how Paul lived. I mean, what did he do that enabled him to go the distance, only becoming stronger in the face of difficulties and uncertainty? How do we summarize Paul, it's kind of a tall task. I mean, he's the author of half of the New Testament, the most influential writer in the history of the world. He wrote things like, do not be anxious about anything. Do, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of God? How can I, I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And, and you could probably come up with many other incredible words that, that you would quote from Paul that you say on a regular basis. Today, I simply want to highlight three main purposes I see in Paul's life. The first purpose was to preach that we cannot earn salvation, instead we receive it by a gift of faith. I mean, his entire theology can be summarized in that one sentence from the letter in Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is one who helped us understand more fully that we cannot earn our salvation. We can never be good enough on our own. We can never get ourselves to be sin-free on our own. It is a gift. It's by, by grace that you've been saved, justified freely by God's grace through the blood, the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. And grace is what turned the world upside down. The second purpose is to build communities of Jesus followers who saw themselves as one unified people. Regardless of their differences, Jew, non-Jew, male, female, slave, or free, Paul fully embraced Jesus' desire to create one unified family of equals living under his kingdom. I mean, the whole story arc of the Bible What God wanted to do is to restore a single worldwide family who were under his authority as he created them to be. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to be one hope that belongs to your call. Uh, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, all are members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, all were made to drink of one spirit. See, what this means is church unity across ethnic and gender and socioeconomic groups is not an optional extra. It is a foundational understanding. We are one single family. Paul had to really help the Jews, especially those in Jerusalem, including Peter, to switch from focusing on let's stay separate to allowing Gentiles in without putting extra rules on them. Because frankly, earlier you see all throughout the New Testament, despite some assimilation, there were still differences. One of them was it was still taboo for Gentiles and Jews to intermarry and for Many, they could be friends, but to give your son and daughter in marriage, that was still something that was taboo. And 
there was a consistent as well beyond that, a consistent distinctive of early church was that they gathered and they ate meals together. So, so just think about this for a moment. Imagine what it must have been like, especially for the slave. After a day of work, you'd actually sit down and eat a meal with your slave owner. Because the slave owner and the freed, and the slave in Christ are equal brothers, is what Paul taught. Every person is part of my family, and I can't treat them the way I used to before I chose to follow Jesus. I mean, imagine, this is no easy task, right? To bring these new believers from multicultural polytheistic communities with a social caste system where anything goes and join them together to love and be loyal to Jesus as one big family. This is a sheer miracle when you really look at it in context of history and what happened. Everyone is welcome to the table. Outside the church and even inside the church, historically this has often been misunderstood. These topics of how, how the New Testament treats women or how the New Testament speaks of slavery. If you have questions about that, if what I'm saying, you go, well, that's not what I've heard. That's not what I understood these statements say. What I'm telling you is what the New Testament says. And I would love for you to have those questions and join me tomorrow night on Zoom and just bring those questions. We'll talk about them. We'll show you in more depth. We don't have time to go into more depth of of how this is so absolutely the core of what Paul is doing, but it is. So we'll talk more tomorrow night if you join me. There was a new kind of separateness that came from following Jesus. Paul redefines separateness. It is no longer about being circumcised or eating kosher foods, but rather you are a new creation and therefore you live differently. And we do see in Paul's letters, especially in Colossians, Ephesians, there are clear standards when we follow Jesus. Like we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to engage in crass speech. We look at money differently. Money is handled as a gift from God that God directs through your life for his purposes. There's clear sexual boundaries, among many other things, that we're commanded to live differently. Their loyalty to Jesus brought a new level of holiness. And their differences in how they lived and loved were so noticed in the communities in which they lived that it began to radically change the social fabric of the communities around them. Now, Paul spends years traveling to all these cities, and on his third third missionary journey, we see Paul senses from God that he's supposed to go back to Jerusalem. We saw that in the Bible Project video you saw in a minute ago. In the midst of there was a famine going on. In, in Jerusalem, among the Christians, and the church is suffering greatly. And Paul puts an enormous amount of energy into gathering money from all these daughter churches to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the mother church where it all started. Paul leads the way in having hundreds of daughter churches give back to the mother church. And for him, this gift from non-Jewish churches to the Jewish church experiencing famine was one of these ultimate symbols of what it means to love radically and generously in a new unified creation, the unity of the Jews and non-Jews in the kingdom of God. We are part of something bigger, and we are in this together, is what Paul is saying, and it's come full circle back to the mother church. This is what Paul is working towards. 
being of a different class no longer separates people. They will care for each other and make, make each other's problems their own problems and generously share with one another. It's actually interesting. Uh, Paul was determined to be the one to take this gift back to Jerusalem. Why? I mean, it's obvious Paul could have probably lived a longer life had he stayed outside of Jerusalem. He could have someone else go and bring the cash to them. Yet Paul felt like it, it, he was to bring the gift to Jerusalem, even though he knew there would be a lot of people there who wanted him dead. At one point, even a prophet, it references, and there came to him and, and did this little symbolic thing, tying a belt and around, and around him and saying, whoever goes to Jerusalem will be bound and tied like this. And Paul says, yeah, I know that's a word from God, but I'm going anyway because God's told me to go. So all you're doing is preparing me to what God's going to do, what's going to happen. He risks everything for unity. Paul's passion for unity, I think, challenges me. It probably challenges all of us. It, was meant, so, it meant so much to him. And does, does, does unity in the church mean that much to us? I mean, if Paul showed up to her, here today and saw the different barriers between people in church and what we have, what, what would he think? I saw a study, it was kind of amusing, um, that the average American thinks they are better than the average American in morality, skills, and intelligence. Another study went even further and said that 50% of men and 30% of women think they are geniuses. We know that's not true, right? <laughs> our natural tendency is to overstate our own qualities and our abilities, and that's actually called illusory superiority. This is quite contrary to Paul's challenge to us when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Understand, Paul is not wanting us to downgrade our own value, but instead to highly value one another, realizing that we are not better than others, we are better with each other. But isn't our world about creating and leveraging advantage for personal gain? Aren't we conditioned to think my way is superior to your way of thinking? Our inclination is to look at someone and see their faults, to put ourselves in a superior position where our opinions, our thoughts, our process, our group is superior. So we criticize and it helps us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Unity is hard, isn't it? It's really hard. You think you're right, I think I'm right. It's difficult to humble ourselves and lower the importance of our differences and elevate the importance of our common love for God and for each other. And yet this is the central theme in Paul's writings. He did all he could do to bring unity, to focus on the essentials instead of highlighting the things that divide us. Third purpose of Paul's life is seen really clearly in Luke's writings and Acts. It's Paul modeled how to navigate this, this tension of I don't know, especially in regard to our relationship with the government and the cultural power structures. I mean, Paul is a threat to the Jews. They want to get rid of him, but they can't. They need the Romans to find fault in Paul, but the Romans don't really care if he violates the Jewish traditions. 
So the Jews need to present Paul as a social and political agitator. Therefore, they frame and accuse Paul of things he didn't do, trying to paint him as a rebel leader against Rome. Now, Paul was not a threat militarily, but if we're honest, he was socially. Because living by living like Jesus, Paul and his follower, the followers of Jesus undermined the entire social order of their culture without ever using violence. Luke devotes actually one quarter of, the, of what he writes in Acts to how Paul handled himself when he was arrested, beaten, and or imprisoned. And Luke shows this pattern in six cycles throughout the book of always beginning with Paul getting arrested and put on trial. Then Paul gives a speech. He's just this eloquent debater, this genius debater. And, and then the speech always ends with the official saying, he's not done anything worthy of being arrested or put to death. Yet Paul stays imprisoned often and he's unjustly detained time. And again, Paul models for all those who come after him how to face the hostility from government or any kind of persecution. I mean, Paul could have gotten out of imprisonment in, 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 in numerous ways, but instead he felt led to work through and witness to the leaders in this political justice system. So think about this. The easiest way to change a culture is to kick out the old political structure and put in a new one. But that's not what Paul is about, and that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity focused on the ground level. Paul focused on groups of people who gathered where slaves were treated as equals and women were allowed to lead and pray. The church focused on feeding the poor and using their money not on themselves but to bless the entire community. Paul encouraged Christians to exert influence and power in a radically different way than our culture, their culture, most cultures do. Paul showed how we are not focused on replacing the power structure of Rome. We can serve it and seek its well-being, but we are to be loyal to something higher than it. See, Paul was under house arrest for two years for no reason. And during that time, many scholars think that because of understanding the culture of the day and what went on, they, they actually think that what appeared to be happening is the Roman official was waiting for Paul to bribe him, to pay him, to release him. Paul had already shown that he had the power to raise a lot of money through his gift to the church by raising money there. But instead of paying the bribe to get released, Paul stayed in jail. And he respected the justice system of the day. He would not pay a bribe. Paul respected Roman law and followed the law even more fully than these leaders who had imprisoned him. And he actually challenged these leaders to follow their own law. You see it in his speeches. Paul also had a dream where Jesus appeared to him and said, I'm going to take you to Rome to be my witness. And so Paul gets passed from one ruler all the way to the next, all the way up to Caesar. And along the way, Paul shares the message, message of Jesus. This is such a critical step. He saw it as such an opportunity. But what motivated Paul to give his life like this? I mean, Paul's motivation is actually really clear. He pens it himself in 2 Corinthians when he says, For Christ's love compels us. God's love drove him to share no matter what the cost. 
I get it. Love has many meanings today, especially today. It has many meanings that are fluffy and just silly. But Paul's love was about knowing and experiencing God's covenant kind of love. And you see that covenant kind of love expressed in many places. Jeremiah expresses it really well when he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. See, when Paul experienced Jesus, the one who was the embodiment of that love, Paul feels that love surrounding him, sustaining him, encouraging him, and the only choice is to love in return. We were talking about this in our home this last week. How do you experience God's love? Maybe that's a good question for you to talk about over lunch today. How do you experience God's love in your life? I think it's interesting for Paul to note many scholars believe that when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was actually practicing a devotional exercise when the Holy Spirit and and when Jesus appeared to him and knocked him off his horse. The Holy Spirit uses regular practices for holy encounters. So Wendy was thinking about how she experiences God's love and she's talking about how her small group is reading through the Psalms. And so she was reading the daily psalm and just kind of kind of doing it because it's habit, not necessarily expecting that much. And there was one verse in Psalm 73 about the love of God that stood out to her. And she said in that moment when she read it, it just radically rearranged her day, her week, her hope, her confidence. God moves in small moments, in daily practices that we have. So let's summarize this I don't knows of our world today this way. Where are you putting your energy in the face of all the I don't knows. What are you focusing on? God has called you to be a part of something bigger than you, the church. Like Paul, to focus on strengthening the unity of the church so we can really make a difference in this world. So right now I'd like you to just for a moment imagine being a part of the early church with all the chaos and danger and receive this prayer that Paul speaks over them as a prayer he's speaking over you right now. And maybe maybe for some of you, you may just want to close your eyes and, and just soak this up as a prayer that God is praying over you right now. The prayer is this in Ephesians 3. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's continue to pray. God, I thank you that our future is not determined by how much we can control, that our hope and our security is in you. I pray for each person that we would grow in confidence, knowing the truth of how secure we are in you, no matter what it may look like, you love us, you have hope for us, you have good plan for us, you can redeem whatever situation we are facing, that you, God, are with us. And that we would encounter you and be securely anchored in your love. 
We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.